1. Titus chapter 1, and you will find that on page 1857. Page 1857. Beginning our reading at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light, through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since a bishop, an overseer, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word, the word of the Lord. Lord, bless me as I share these thoughts briefly today and as we have a congregational meeting to elect officers later. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look with me for a moment at Titus chapter 1. And the purpose that, that Paul left Titus in Crete was for him to straighten out the mess. What was the mess? They did not have biblical church government. And so the first task that he has is to do what? If you look at verse 5. He says in that second major clause, and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Now, this underscores a basic truth. That is that elders, plural, are essential for the functioning of the church. What is an elder? Well, if you look in its context, he says in verse 7, since an overseer, and, and that's the word that you look at the bottom, traditionally bishop. Now, there are two Greek words here, and when I say them, uh, you'll recognize them. The first word is the word for elder, which is presbyteros, and the other one is the word for bishop, which is episkopos. And so we get the word presbyterian from the word elder, and we get the word episcopal or episcopalian from the word overseer or bishop. 
And what we see here is that the two terms are used interchangeably. Every elder is a bishop, and every bishop is an elder. Now, in the three centuries that followed the gathering of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, in the three centuries that followed, many things changed. And what is the basic truth is this. People love money and power. People love money and power. And once they get it, they don't want to let go of it. I remember the song in Porgy and Bess, the song of Porgy. I got no rug on the floor, that's okay with me. And he said, people with plenty of plenty uh, worry all the time. they have got to have a lock on the door. And here's the deal. Once you get power, and once you get money, you don't want to let go of it. And so it is natural and normal. And Paul even warned in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there would come a time when people would deny the faith and would make up rules and regulations that had nothing to do with the Bible. Turn with, if you will, just to the left to 1 Timothy 4 and see that. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And he says... Um, Page 1848, verse 1, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Must be really horrible if it's taught by demons, right? Ted Bundy, John Gacy, other things like that. What is it? Let's see, what 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 are these uh, doctrines of demons? Verse 2, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Look at verse 3. They forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, the point that we have here is this. If you look at church history, early on in the history of the church, people rose to power, and then they forbade people to get married. And uh, in the beginning it was they forbade bishops to get married, and then they forbade the pastors of local churches to get married. But all you have to do is look at church history in both its eastern and western branches, and you see this doctrine of demons came into the church early on in the history of the church. Is it a doctrine of demons to forbid a priest to marry? Yes, says Paul. It's a doctrine of demons. What does it lead to? It leads to a pandemic of pedophilia. For example, two weeks ago I was reading in the paper about the Archbishop of New Orleans and how he shuffled this particular pedophile around from one parish to another parish and another parish, covering up. The pedophilia. The point is that when men are not allowed to marry, things happen that are not good. And that's why he calls it a doctrine of demons. And, um, and so again, but there are people who have the supernatural gift, the spiritual gift of being single. St. Paul was one of those people. He did not need to be married uh, because of the the Holy Spirit's unique gift for him and for other Christians. And again, all kinds of bizarre things like forbidding eating meat. Where in the world is that? And commanding people during Lent only to eat fish and fish on Fridays and things like that? 
What you see here, the corruption that came into the church early on, and one of the things I want to say is this, that corruption fundamentally has to do with what I want to call professionalism. Professionalism. A professional good man. God forbid that I ever become a professional good man. That's what people sometimes call a pastor, a professional good man. Now if we turn back a page or two, we go over to chapter 3, and he says in verse 1, page 1847, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is, an elder, he desires a noble task. Now he goes on and describes all of the qualities that are there, and then he says, uh, at, the, at the very end, he says, he says this, what is the one thing, excuse me, in the very beginning, uh, in verse 2, now the overseer, the bishop, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Notice the qualification for an elder. An elder has to be able to preach. An elder has to be able to teach. Why? Well, we'll go back to Titus and see why in a moment. There are differences in elders and deacons. Deacons oversee the finances of a church. They oversee the building and grounds of the church. And they make sure that those in need in the church have money and food to take care of them. That's the work of the deacon. But what is the work of the elder? The elder has to be able to open the Bible and explain biblical passages to people, and we'll go back and see why and now, in a moment. But then he, he mentions deacons further, further down, and I believe that in verse 8 he says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, and so on. And then in verse 11, I believe when you combine this with Romans chapter 16, where you discover Phoebe, who was a deacon, that the early church had both, both deacons who were male and deacons who were female. And so in that sense, in the same way these, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And again, the deacon must be husband of one wife, and so on. Now, the point I want to make as we turn back to Titus chapter 1 is this, that there are two permanent offices in the New Testament. The apostles function as the forerunner of elders, as Peter himself says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, the elders who are among you, I exhort as your fellow elder. And, and so again, I want you to look back in Titus chapter 1, and he says here on, on page 1858, where he says in, in verse uh, 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And then he mentions some of the troubles they were facing in Crete. He says there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision group. Verse 11, here's a qualification for an elder that is not a qualification for a deacon. An elder must be somebody who is able to silence people 
because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. I want you to think about that for a moment. The reason I left you in Crete, he says, was to ordain elders or bishops for each church. Notice this fundamental truth. There is no such thing as a church with only one pastor. The problem with this church, and I mean Trinity Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is not that I'm a traveling preacher who comes up on weekends and am not here during the week. Even though if there's a funeral or if somebody's deadly ill, uh, I will come up and visit them. The problem with Trinity is you need more than one pastor. You need pastors in this church, plural. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, if we look at Scripture, we see that some elders receive compensation and other elders do not. What is an elder? An elder is a pastor, period. No ifs, no ands, no buts. What do pastors do? Well, I can tell you what pastors do because I do it all the time. Pastors visit people in their home. Pastors try to answer questions from the Bible when people have a question. What about this, pastor? What about that, pastor? They try to answer those questions. A pastor is a person who is competent enough in the Scripture to be able to open his or her Bible and say, well, this is wrong because the Bible says this. Trinity needs more than one pastor, and it certainly doesn't need to have uh, multiple traveling uh, pastors paid a salary. I'm grateful for the compensation because it costs money to operate a car. Do you know that last Lord's Day when we left here, we had a hole in the tire? It was identical to what had happened two years before, which happened to be on July the 4th. How God got us up here on Sunday morning with a hole in the tire and then got us back home with a hole in the tire is beyond belief. All I could think of is he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And you know, that was a promise for David, but it's ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're in Christ, it's a promise for you and me as well. So God got us up here and got us home, and I had to buy two new tires. And so it costs money to travel. I'm grateful for the compensation I get. And, but you know, I'll say this about myself. I have never worked for money. And I've turned down raises over the years in the church that I served in Alexandria for 40 years. Why would you do that? Because I happen to believe that if I have a real need, I don't need people to meet that need. God will meet that need. And so I've never worked for money. I've worked for God, and I've trusted Him to take care of our needs. And He always has. I'm just amazed at how He's done that. The point is, what does Trinity need? Trinity needs pastors, plural, or elders, plural. And they do what? They do the work of the ministry. So again, we go back and go over with me now to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, page 1718. Acts 14, beginning at verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. 
Notice something here. There's no seminary. Am I grateful for seminary? I'm grateful for seminary. I'm grateful that I was entrusted with the gift of learning Greek and then of learning Hebrew and sitting at the feet of many modern-day Gamaliels. I'm grateful for that. But there's no sending off these pastors to be trained somewhere. How do pastors learn to be pastors? It's an apprenticeship. It's like today, we will elect an elder, I pray, and that elder will be apprenticed to another elder to learn the ropes. What do I need to do? And so the point is that they appointed elders in every place. And, and that's an important truth. Elders in every place. Turn over to the right to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And um, notice what Paul says here. Acts chapter 20. And this is where Paul, in verse 13, page 1729, uh, where Paul says his farewell to the elders uh, of Ephesus. And we begin, and look at what he says. Uh, Verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Notice, elders, plural. Every church is to have elders. What is an elder? An elder is a pastor. Every church is to have pastors. What is an elder? An elder is a bishop, episcopos. Every church is to have bishops, bishops, elders, pastors. And so he meets with the elders, the bishops, the pastors of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know how that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. What does an elder do? He does what the Apostle Paul did. He teaches publicly, and he teaches from house to house. And uh, he says, I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house anything that would be helpful to you. And and I want to say, as I complete four years here in mid-August, I don't know how long God will keep me here. I don't know how long God will keep me on earth. I'll be happy to sing I'll Fly Away. And uh, as long as I live, I want to fulfill that burden in my life, on my heart, that is to serve God's people as an elder. And so he says, uh, Paul says, I haven't hesitated to share anything that would be helpful for you. And you know, I've done different series here. One series I have not completed, and that is the the series on last things. I'll get to that. And currently I'm doing uh, Bible passages that upset people and trying to give you a way to uh, understand how to present those things to people who get upset about them. So he says, I haven't held back anything. And now notice in verse 22, he says, excuse me, I've declared, verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice those are two things in the gospel that we'll study tomorrow night. How do you make Presbyterians out of pagans? 
Because we've been studying since January of 2022 officer training. And we've had people who have completed that training. But now we're switching to how do you do evangelism. And I'd say tongue-in-cheek, how do you turn pagans into Presbyterians? How do you take pagans and introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the, ma- the whole thing is. I don't care if you lead someone to Christ and that person ends up at First Baptist Texarkana or an Assembly of God church or a Methodist church that's truly evangelical and preaches the gospel. Because we're not here in a sectarian way to turn Presbyterianism into a cult or make it cultic. We want to lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the matter. And then he goes on and he says here, repentance and faith. It's not just faith. It's repentance that leads us to faith. Without repentance, there's no true faith. What is repentance? Repentance is coming to grips that I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I never will be. And I cast myself on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an aspect of faith. I cast myself on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I do that, then I believe that the Lord Jesus died for my sins according to the Scriptures. You see, it's two sides of one coin. Turning and embracing. It's basically the essence of faith. Turning from sin, never perfectly in this life. And you know, as you read those descriptions of what elders and deacons and deaconesses ought to be in the Bible... Uh, if you're like me and you have a sensitive conscience, you say, Lord, how can I possibly uh, hold this position? I'm so imperfect. And the mark of a true Christian is an awareness of his or her own imperfection. So repentance and faith. And then he goes on down here. He says, uh, beginning uh, at verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Wow. That's quite a farewell, isn't it? No wonder they wept. No wonder they embraced him and kissed him. He says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And I want to be able to say this of this church and my brief ministry here. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Verse 27. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now look at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the elders, the presbyteroi, uh, from which we get the word Presbyterian. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you, what's the word? Overseers. What is the Greek word behind the word overseer? Episkopos. So what, what is the New Testament church? It's an Episcopal church defined as a Presbyterian church. In other words, all elders are bishops and all bishops are elders. Elders have the responsibility of being shepherds over Christ's sheep. And again, that involves visiting people in their homes, visiting them in the hospital, praying for them, praying with them, and being able to open the Bible and share truth. And listen, if we look at the New Testament church, how did the New Testament church grow and grow and grow? Because what they did was raise money. They found some young fella 
who had aptitude, and they sent him off to study in Jerusalem for three years, uprooting his family, maybe causing a divorce because of the whole issue, causing him to go broke. Is that what they did? Of course not! That is a modern idea. Now, am I against seminary? Again, I'm, I'm not against seminary. I'm grateful that I was able to go to seminary for four years and then for another three. I'm grateful I was able to study. I'm grateful I knew the languages and learned them. But what is the model of the New Testament church? How did it grow? It grew because it recognized people with an aptitude to learn the truth and share the truth. Learn the truth and share the truth. And he says here, uh, he says, be shepherds. Now that in Latin is the word pastor. We get the word pastor from the word shepherd. So what is an elder? An elder's a shepherd. And then he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Notice what he says in verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Look at verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. And how important that truth is. What does God want in a pastor? God wants in a pastor passion. The ability to cry. The ability to weep with people who weep. And to rejoice with those who rejoice. To share in the sufferings and joys of God's people. And if you're here today and already ordained as an elder, this is your calling. And if you're not doing it, do it! If you don't do it, this church will die! Because this church needs pastors, plural, elders, plural, bishops, plural. That's what this church needs. This is, an, this is a call to get up and do what you've been called to do. It's your responsibility before God. You swore an oath before Almighty God and before His people you would do these things. And then we notice something else if we, in the book of Acts. Turn back to Acts chapter 6. This is an important truth. And we see again the beginning of the office of deacon, Acts chapter 6. And we, we discover there, page 1700, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. This is the beginning of the office of deacon. So what, what's going on? I've taught on this before. The Grecian Jews the Hel- were Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews were those that practiced real kosher. Like, for example, when I was in Israel in 2000, I could never get a cheeseburger. Because true practicing Jews who practice Judaism with its fence around the law, will never mix a meat dish with a milk dish. And if you go into the home of of practicing Jews, you'll discover they have dishes for meat and they have dishes for milk. 
things like cheese and so on. And never the twain will meet. So you understand something here, that in the early church, a cultural, not a racial division, a cultural division was splitting the church. Because the Hellenistic, that is the more liberal Jewish Christian widows, were actually being neglected. And the, the kosher uh, Jewish Christian widows were not being neglected. And so, notice it says, they were being overlooked in that verse 1. Now notice in verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, now again, you have to understand, 1 Peter 5, 2. Peter is functioning as an elder. The apostles were elders. The elders among you, I say, as your fellow elder, 1 Peter 5, 2. And notice what the twelve, this is the elders, gathered together, they gathered all the disciples together and said, now you want to know what an elder does. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. The ministry of the Word of God. What is the duty of an elder? It's to focus on the ministry of the Word of God. To understand it. And to understand it in such a way that he or she can explain it to other people. And it's to understand it in such a way so that when, when someone is teaching false doctrine, they are able to say, wait a minute. That doesn't line up with God's Word. So he says, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. What do we mean by wait on tables? It doesn't mean that they, they're like the maitre d' and the head waiter and the other waiters and waitresses in restaurants. What they're talking about is making sure that the people who don't have enough have enough. And so notice what he says. Verse 3. Brothers, and again, we have to not allow our sexist predispositions to interpret that as only referring to males. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. Is the work of the diaconate a spiritual work? Yes, it is. And wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to notice. What is the work of an elder? What is the work of a bishop? What is the work of a pastor? To prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. The duty of an elder is to pray for the congregation. The duty of an elder, and we should divide the church up, as we have in the past, so that we have under-shepherd lists. And that means that your elder is responsible for you, and you call your elder when you have a need. If you learn of something, and you should expect that that elder will come to you as soon as possible, to meet with you and pray with you. That's the job of an elder. That's the job of a pastor. That's the job of a bishop. And it is to pray and study the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Notice there is a congregational element. And God wants His people to choose things. And it says here in verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, who was also the first martyr. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert, from, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice the result of having 
biblical church government in a local church. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, that's talking about Jewish priests. We're not just talking about Levites here, we're talking about descendants of Aaron. Notice what he says, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that a striking thing? So a biblical church is a church that will prosper. Now as I look at the future, what do I see? This is not Ebenezer Scrooge having a nightmare because of an undigested uh, piece of meat that was in, in A Christmas Carol. This is what I see as I look at Scripture and I look at the country and I look at the future. This is not saying that this is going to be. But I will tell you this. It is not out of the question that within less than 10 years, churches in America as we know them will cease to exist. How does the church survive? The church survives by doing what they did in the first century. The church not only survived, the church multiplied and thrived in a system where they didn't own buildings, but they took their money to help those who had needs. And I think particularly today of a, of a woman uh, who's a member of our church with great needs. I won't name the name because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But it's the, it's the duty of this church to find out those who are needy and to have deacons to take money and clothing and food and other things and make sure that those among us who have needs have those needs met. You know, I I look back and I'm very fond of the people in Junction City. They're the ones that gave me my back trouble when I fell over backwards going up the steps to do a funeral. And... uh, But I've been there many times over the years for their anniversary. And they have a lady in the cemetery, born in Scotland. I'm wearing my Scottish tartan tie. uh, Born in Scotland in the 1700s. Now here is one of the sad things. One of the people that I love the most there, his great burden is not growing the church. His burden is to make sure that cemetery is kept up. Something's wrong with that. And I look back when I was in college and I preached in all these little Presbyterian churches as an unordained preacher. And I would find, I would do a, a 9.30 service here and 20 minutes later I would do a, another church service in another church. And I thought to myself, why don't these people merge? And I looked and I saw the reason. They were being ruled by the dead. Wow, how macabre. Ruled by the dead. It's as if the skeletons of their ancestors were in there and saying, don't you ever sell this building. I want you to make sure that my grave is taken care of and I'm remembered. Wow. So my dear friend, who's a real Christian, is more concerned about making sure that cemetery, with that lady buried in it from the 1700s, that's an ancestor of, of Martha, I think, that, uh, that that cemetery's kept up. Wow. Wow. So what is the future of the church in America? In my view, 
We need to be prepared for a future that is not as open and welcoming to Christians as it has been since we were founded as a nation 247 years ago on the 4th of July. Things are not friendly in many places. And because of the antics of Christians and getting involved in issues that were stupid, we have alienated so, so many people. So here is my admonition to you. As your part-time, one of several pastors, it's this. Let's elect people to office, knowing that none of us is perfect, all of us have flaws, all of us come short of being what we ought to be, but let's do this so that this church can survive because we're in trouble. And we're in trouble when you think about it. I'm 76, and I'm a youngster. So let's pray. Lord, we pray for this church. I love this church. I love the people of this church. Lord, virtually every day, Sandy and I pray for each member of this church by name because we've come to love these people. And Lord, I don't want you to abandon them. And I'm willing to come here until I am forced never to travel again. Lord, as with the Apostle Paul wanting to prepare the people of God for the future, that's my prayer. That's my plea. As even at our General Assembly, I was looking for someone who would be willing to come here and, and, and support himself as a bivocational pastor. But the reality of the truth is this. The early church didn't even worry about things like that. They ordained people so that the local church would be a disciple-making group. May we be a disciple-making group that people would know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.